Hebrews 8, 8 through 13. For he he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Lord, we ask for your spirit here this evening to fill us and guide our understanding of your word. This is a passage that both is so glorious and yet oftentimes confusing to people. And so we ask right now, Lord, that you would, with your spirit, bring clarity and understanding to our hearts and minds. So that, like this passage says, that we would have your understanding within us. We pray, Lord, that with a passage as glorious as this one, that we would have our souls enlivened, that we would see you as so glorious, Lord, and we would give you all the praise that's due your name after we've heard from you tonight, Lord, in your name. Amen. So, passages like this, for me, have been awfully confusing. See, when I got saved, became born again, I was quickly brought into a tradition. I quickly entered a particular theological tradition. And as many wonderful, good things that I gained from that tradition, things like studying the Bible and taking it seriously, things like trusting the Holy Spirit to do His work in my life, There was a bifurcation, though, of the Gentiles and the Jews. Israel and the nation of Israel on one hand, and everybody else on the other hand. And I would come to passages like this, and it would bring me no small amount of consternation. A lot of theological anxiety as I wrestled with this reading a passage like this and thinking, how in the world does this apply to me when he says, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'm not one of them. Never have been, never will. 
So how does this in the New Testament apply to me? I had a similar struggle with the book of Galatians. If you're familiar with it, in fact, turn there if, if, if you can real quickly. And if not, just listen. I'm going to read two specific things out of the book of Galatians. But in the book of Galatians, the whole argument of the book is Paul is saying to this group of Jewish, pardon me, Gentile Christians who have come under the influence of some Jewish leaders and Jewish people, and they were saying things like, you know what, it's so good, you guys got Jesus. Yes, Jesus is great, but, but, whoa, don't get carried away with Jesus. Because remember, he was a Jew. And if you want to really be right with God, you do need to believe in Jesus, but you've also got to become Jewish. And these Gentile Christians were like, whoa, okay. You seem to know the Bible a whole lot better than I do. You seem to know better. And so Paul's entire argument in Galatians is, no, 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 no. Stop. Stop. He starts off the book by saying, if somebody comes and proclaims another gospel than what I preach, may they be damned to hell. Anathema, cursed. No, no, it's so serious, the things that they were coming in and saying, that Paul has to say, they are damnable heresies that they're bringing in. Quit believing that stuff, folks. And he says this in chapter 3. He says, all who rightly rely on the works of the law, verse 10, are under a curse. If you try to be right and consistent with the law, then you're under the curse, is Paul's argument here. Why? Because cursed is everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So, you want to come under the influence of the law, you want to say, okay, Jesus plus Judaism, then you have to do everything the law says. And nobody does that. Now, it's evident... That no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from that curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that, here's the key. Verse 14. Listen up, gang. In Christ... The blessing of Abraham, Jews, might come to Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. His whole argument is that everything that was promised to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. And anybody, including the Jews who trust in Christ, receive all of the promises of Abraham. Now that's great news. He goes so far that in the end of Galatians, in chapter 6, he says, we are to do good, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And in verse 16, he tells us who that is. The Israel of God. Meaning, the Israel of God is the church of the living God. He goes so far as to say, the church is Israel. That is inflammatory. That 
is hard to believe. That still to this day causes a lot of theological drama, argumentation, and tension in churches. But I believe that's exactly what he's saying here. In fact, I have a hard time making sense of the new covenant that we're looking at here in Hebrews chapter 8 if we don't have the understanding that the new covenant and what comes in with the new covenant is all of the promises that were promised to Abraham for everyone who believes both Jew and Gentile alike, right? Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that what Christ did is he tore down the wall that separated Jew and Gentile. And that wall was the law. It divided us one from the other. But Christ tore that wall down so that now in Christ there's no longer Jewish Christians. There's not Gentile Christians, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. All of us are one in him. Another problem is this land promise that the Israelites, as we look to these passages in the Old Testament regarding the new covenant, they talk about land. We're going to look at them in just a second. And we might scratch our heads and wonder, okay, so are we as Christians going to inherit some property here on the earth? And the answer is really no, because again, the New Testament interprets this for us, this principle. Romans chapter 4, the Bible tells us that Abraham and all of the promises that were given to Abraham are fulfilled as Abraham inherits not a little strip of land in that we might call Palestine in the Middle East, but that he inherits the whole world. All of it! The whole world! All becomes part of Abraham's possession in Abraham's promises given to him. So there's a greater fulfillment in Christ than ever we would have thought just reading the Old Testament as it is. Now, we're in Hebrews. Right here in Hebrews, one of the things that the writer of Hebrews is wanting to do is wanting to show explicitly and without contradiction why following Christ is better than everything else, right? Guys, follow Christ. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't go back to some Jewish mysticism. Don't muck around or try to fuddle with your faith. Trust in Christ. Despite your hardship, despite the difficulty, despite what you're feeling, because there's nothing better out there. And so he starts off this section by saying he finds fault in the Old Covenant. In fact, he says it here in the beginning of our passage, verse 8. He finds fault with them when he says, and then he goes on from there. First thing that I want to point out is the problem specifically wasn't with the covenant itself. Okay? A covenant is an agreement between two parties. Between two peoples or groups of people. In Scripture, we find this happening a couple of places. In the Old Testament, first of all, with Adam. Adam, I almost said Abraham. Adam. (laughs) In chapter 1 and 2, and then the fall in 3 of Genesis. We know this is a covenant from Hosea chapter 6. 
because it tells us that Abraham transgressed the covenant of God. And what happened there is this, is God created Adam and he made him with this glorious garden to tend, all of the animals to name, everything he was allowed to partake of except one thing, stipulation of the covenants. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we don't have that explicit, but certainly the implication is there, is that if Adam were to have refrained from eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he would have fulfilled the covenant that God made with him, and that Adam would have received eternal life. Now we see this in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 when we see the tree of life suddenly reappear out of nowhere in scripture. Where did that come from? The whole point is, is that covenant that Adam broke in the garden is now fulfilled in Christ and the fruit of the tree of life is now available for all of us to partake of in eternity and in heaven. So the first covenant we see is on page one. So God is serious about covenant if he starts his book, starts his revelation with giving of a covenant. Giving of an agreement between himself and Adam. And Adam's role in that was not just his own role, right? You understand he represented all of humanity. So all of the people born from Adam were under this covenant that God made with Adam. So if God made a covenant with Adam, he made a covenant with all of us. And if Adam broke God's covenant, then we all broke God's covenant. Because Adam, the best human that ever existed, apart from Christ himself, broke that covenant. Now, later on in history, as you're walking through the Bible and you get to Exodus... One of the things you find, and we read it right here, that God made a covenant with the fathers when he took them by the hand. Don't you love that symbolism, that language there? That God, I mean, you don't quite get that as you're reading Exodus, that it's God taking them by the hand like a little child and walking them across, you know, the desert and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, I get it. The other day we were at a party and Charlotte was hanging out with me and and one of the things, there was a pool right there and she wanted to be right there in the middle of the pool and everything. Not in the pool, but in the pool action, right? Because the pool was crazy because kids were jumping and splashing going on and it was kind of intimidating. It was kind of a lot happening. But she wanted to be right there and so what she did is she took me I took her by the hand and we went over there and we just kind of hung out by the pool and somebody jumped off the diving board and she was like oh put her hands over her mouth and she climbs up on the diving board and stands there and then she just gets right back down and is like okay okay I had my full of excitement there for that particular minute but it was me giving her security because I had her hand. He's following me, folks, right? There's a lot of scary stuff that happened in Exodus. But God says, I had them by the hand, and I walked them through. And one of the things he did is he gingerly, carefully, they weren't redheads, as they carefully and with all thought and compassion took them out of Egypt and took them into the promised land was that he, along with that, reestablished this old covenant, the same covenant. I do believe it is a reinstitution of the original covenant with Adam. 
a covenant of works. A covenant whereby you had to fulfill requirements of the law. A covenant whereby God made it with the nation of Israel and said, I will be your God and you will be my people as long as you... Ten Commandments. 613 other laws given on top of those Ten Commandments. That's a lot to follow. That's a lot to do. We already saw in Galatians that if you're going to live under that law... You're going to die under that law because no one can fulfill that law. But God says here that that was still a manifestation of his care for them. And I believe it was. You see, what God was doing there is he was re-showing them, you can't do it without me. Now, Adam's fall was a little different because God had ordained, I'm going to use that word and I'm not going to shy away from it, that the fall would happen. So that he would be shown off as most glorious and most gracious by saving a sinful humanity from their sins. And so yes, God ordained that to happen. Don't mishear me saying as if God had a big spiritual bazooka at the head of Adam and Adam was just robotically walking over to eat that fruit. Adam did what he wanted to do. No doubt. I didn't take God by surprise. He wasn't like, whoa, what just happened here? I was looking at Mars for a second and Adam's suddenly overeating fruit from the tree. What kind of nonsense is that? No, God knew it. He ordained it. It all happened according to plan. The same thing with the nation of Israel. God, in giving the covenant to the nation of Israel, never intended salvation to come to that nation by that covenant. You ask yourself then, what the heck? (laughs) Why would God give a crazy law like that that no one can follow, that no one can keep, and, and think that this is somehow a good thing? Here's why. There's two reasons. Number one, to demonstrate the futility of ourselves and our will. You see, what the law does for us is it shows us our inability. It breaks us before God, right? Jesus said said himself in the Gospel of Matthew, Blessed is anyone who falls upon the rock is broken, but woe to him upon whom the rock falls on and crushes. The law brings us to Christ broken because it brings us to the place where we realize, I can't live up to this. I can't do this. God, you have to be gracious to me or else I will not live. The second thing it does is it shows us and demonstrates for us not just our own inability, our own sin, but Christ's glorious nature because he was the only one to fulfill that covenant perfectly accurately, precisely, in the smallest of details, the most infinitesimal point of the law, he fulfilled absolutely perfectly, securing our redemption. There's a great passage, Ezekiel. Use your little flipper digits. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. As you're turning there, Israel 
is in a very precarious situation here at this point. Exiled. Their land has been taken away from them. In their mind, all of the promises to Adam, pardon me, Abraham, have now been broken. God broke his promise. You see? God broke his promise. God said he would keep us in this land. God said he would give this to us. What in the world has happened to God's promises? Spiritually, Israel is in a desperate, desperate place here in chapter 37. God shows up and says to Ezekiel, look what it says there in verse 1 of chapter 37. Hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around among them. Behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. Behold, they were very dry. You get the picture? God brings him to this vast valley. We don't know where, we're not told. We don't know if it's a vision or an actual valley where there was an actual battle. It doesn't matter. The point is Ezekiel was brought here by the Lord and God, again as it were, takes him by his hand and walks him through this valley and he says, what do you see? He says, I see so many bones It covers the entire surface of the valley. You can picture him, right? Like, not wanting to step on any, right? Not wanting to break any. Number one, it would defile him to touch something that had died. But number two, that's just creepy and weird. You know he doesn't want to step on these bones. And so God says to him in verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? I've been around my share of bones. I don't ask that question. I've not had anybody ask me that question. Look what the answer comes. It says, oh Lord God, you know, you know, maybe I... Ezekiel has seen some crazy stuff, right? Chapter 1 is nuts. What the heck is going on? I don't even know. So God brings him to this place after he's seen this crazy nutso visions that he's seen and says, all right, son of man, can these bones live again? And he is not right quick to say, oh yeah, you bet, I saw chapter 1. No, he's like, uh, you know? That's a good answer though, by the way. Verse 4, God says to him, prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus the Lord God says to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you will live. I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
Whoa. So Ezekiel's called to go preach to bones. A valley of bones. And preach, hey bones. God's about to do something. He's going to bring you together. He's going to give you muscles and sinews. He's going to give you lungs and hearts and organs. And he's going to cover you with skin. And then he's going to come within you and breathe the breath of life in you. Hear this, O bones. God's about to move. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, behold, there was a sound, a rattling, as the bones came together. And I looked, and behold, sinews were upon them, flesh came upon them, skin covered them, and suddenly there was no breath in them. But he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, and exceeded great army then he said to me son of man here's the interpretation of what just happened these bones are the whole house of Israel behold they say our bones are dried up our hope is lost we are clean cut off therefore prophesy to them thus says the Lord God behold I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will, listen, put my spirit within you and you shall live. I will place you in your own land and you will know that I am the Lord. Behold, I have spoken it. I will do it, declares the Lord. The interpretive key here is in God's interpretation is that he is going to resurrect life. And in that resurrection of life, one of the things that he is going to accomplish is putting his spirit within his people. This tells us this has a bigger, bigger, bigger ramification than just simply the raw nation of Israel or the singular Jewish people. What he's saying here is his people are going to be resurrected from the dead, which is exactly what Christ came in promising when he said, Behold, I am the resurrection and the life. He said to Nicodemus, You must be born again because you right now are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need new life. We are the bones. We have no hope of salvation on our own. we're, We're the bones. And we need someone to come along and 
heed the word of God and speak to us the prophecy, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has promised that what he would do as that gospel is preached is breathe new life into us and cause us to be born again, cause us to be new in him, cause us to have eternal life. And beloved, that's what this new covenant is. So when the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, this is what he's getting at. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So the new covenant needs to be better than the old covenant in that it doesn't depend upon your accomplishment of the covenant. You're keeping your end of the bargain. You're keeping your end of the deal. The contrast is the old covenant failed because they couldn't do what was required of them. Whereas the new covenant that God is going to make is going to be far better and far superior because God is going to do all the work. And it's not up to you. It's not up to me anymore. We're the dead bones. It's up to God to prophesy, God to breathe, God to restore, God to renew, God to give life, God to raise up and say, now you are mine. Verse 10 in Hebrews 8. For this is the new covenant. I added the word new there because I got it here in my little thing, but it helps. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. Where was the law before this? Tablets of stone. Externally. Over there. Written, first of all, by the finger of God. And then Moses, you remember, smashed those guys. And then he had to go back and fix it. Externally. The law was outside of myself. The law was not in here. I did not have the dilemma that Paul talks about in Romans 7 where I don't do the things I want to do and the things I want to do I find myself not doing. I will write the law in their hearts. I will write the law in their minds. And then this glorious truth, people, oh, beloved, if you've got an implement of writing anywhere near you right now, oh, beloved, get it out. Because you need to circle, you need to underline, you need to scribble, you need to highlight, you need to write, you need to yes and amen, you need this tattooed on your forehead. This, what I'm about to read next, beloved, listen, if you don't hear anything else, listen to this. This next phrase is the single greatest longing that every person has ever had in all of human history. That is not an overstatement. In fact, I'm kind of maybe understating it because English can only take us so far. 
This is the single greatest need, the single greatest thing, the single greatest idea, the single greatest hope for all people anywhere at all time, beloved. This is the good news that we're about to read right here. This is the truth of all truths. This is the one where our hearts sing and our minds explode with joy. This is the truth that for all eternity we spend in the presence of the Father and this is what is declared over us in all of God's passion that he could possibly muster for his redeemed creation. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. There is not a greater truth in all of scripture than this one right here. To have God as your God and you being one of his people. That's why the world looks to religions. That's why the world tries to find meaning and purpose. That's why the world moralizes all of the things they do because they're trying to make sense of their lives. They're trying to belong. They're trying to relate. They're trying to cope. They're trying to understand, but they can't do it because God is not their God. And unless God is their God, they will never be the people they were created to be. We can go all throughout the Bible. In fact, the very psalm that Joel read when we did the scripture reading or the call to worship this morning ends with these words. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. This phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people, begins in the very beginning with Genesis when he tells Adam that you will go and you will take dominion over the earth and you will do this in my name. You will do this in the way that I have told you. And all throughout the scripture, Exodus chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, all throughout the Psalms, we find this same refrain, God will be our God and we will be his people being stated over and over and over again. In fact, look with me real quick. We got a minute? Ah, we do. Go to Jeremiah. We looked at Jeremiah 31 already right here. Go to Jeremiah 32. Here's the new covenant again reiterated. Behold, verse 37, I will gather them from all of the countries to which I have driven them in my anger and in my wrath and in my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And listen, I shall be my, they shall be my own people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in the land of faithfulness. 
with all my heart and my soul. That's God's promise to us. That he would, with this everlasting covenant, be our God and we would be his people. And all of these wonderful blessings would flow from it. We find this over and over and over and over again in scripture. One of my favorite passages, Revelation chapter 21. Here is John as he's looking up and he sees the new heaven and new earth coming down out of heaven. He sees it adorned as a bride for her husband. And he looks up, he sees the holy city as God had prepared and God says this in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Why? Why is there no tears? Why is there no death? Why is there no mourning? Why is there no crying? Why is there no pain? Because this is heaven. And heaven is in the very presence of God. And in God's very presence, those things don't exist. In fact, if someone were to say to you, so tell me about heaven. What's heaven? Well, Pastor Pat, you go to church. He heard he told you the sermon, right? What did he say in the sermon? Heaven is me being with God and God being with me. There's a lot more to it, but that's heaven. And beloved, if that isn't our hope of the gospel, if your hope of the gospel is to just get out of this life, if your hope of the gospel is to not have a burning time in heaven, in hell, pardon me, if your hope of the gospel is that, you know, you would have a better life, that things would go better for you, that you could ha- make sense of your life. And there are so many reasons why people might say that they trust in the gospel or they believe the gospel, but that primary thing is not, I want Jesus. I want God. Because he is my God and I am one of his creatures. Then our understanding that the gospel is either deficient or wrong. Or maybe somewhere in that spectrum. God is the reason for our existence. God is the very reason why you breathe the breath that you breathe right now. God is the reason why you think the thoughts you think. God is the reason why your ears work and your eyes see. God is the reason for it all. And God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Look what he says in verse 13. Oh, pardon me, verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Listen. There is no stability in any covenant unless God graciously forgives you of your sins. Because if God isn't willing to forgive you of your sins or God hasn't forgiven you of your sins, then you are the unstable factor in the equation of that covenant. But forgiveness, listen to this, forgiveness is absolutely complete. And in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the old one obsolete. And becoming obsolete, it's growing old and it's ready 
to vanish away. Now, when we read the old passage in Jeremiah, we see that the apostolic interpretation goes above and beyond what we read there, but that's so good that it does. (laughs) Because if we were just stuck with Jeremiah as it was in chapter 31 and we did not have the understanding of the fullness of Christ securing for us this new covenant, beloved, we're going to have a heck of a time. We're going to still be stuck sacrificing and wondering and having all kinds. We're going to be stuck under the old covenant. The new covenant is this. God is your God and you are his people because he's forgiven you of all your sins and cleansed you from all your unrighteousness. And beloved, that is the most greatest and glorious thing that there is. Repentance is hard. I don't like to admit and have to repent. But Christ has saved me. He has died for my sins. He has atoned for all of my unrighteousness. And he calls me to come to him. And in coming to him means that I acknowledge who I am in him, that I am the one who breaks the old covenant. And in coming to him in that way, he says to me, yes, you are, but well done, good and faithful servant. You didn't do anything. Enter into the joy that's before you. That's the glorious gospel, is Christ takes dry bones, you, beloved, and me, dry bones, and he breathes new life into us and causes us to be born again and resurrected into his life so that he will be our God and we will be his people forever. Lord, I I know that a passage like this we only but scratch the surface of the understanding of this new covenant that we have in you and why it is so much better to have this new covenant than it was to have the old covenant. The old covenant is what caused us to be those dead bones. The old covenant revealed once and for all that we cannot save ourselves. But Lord, you come in with the new covenant and the preaching of your word and you breathe this glorious new life into us and you raise us up and say what you were was dead and now you are alive and now you are mine. Oh Lord, what kind of love is this that I should be called one of your children? What kind of love is this that we should be so such objects of your affection? Lord, may we, having heard these truths here tonight, may we, Lord, be desiring to think more about these things and wrestle with these truths so that we might rest more and more in your grace and your mercy and in all of the goodness that you have given to us in your new covenant, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.